you know, if you're making some money is you got to put together some capital and you probably want, you need to get your feet wet. If you want to jump into the fire, you got to do a project on your own, you know, maybe do a flip, maybe do a renovation, you know, maybe buy a house for yourself and your family that you're going to renovate and get your hands dirty and learn the process. And even if your first deal, you lose money or you break even, you know, just having that knowledge and learning by doing is going to be invaluable. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, It's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to Passive Wealth Principles. I'm your host, Jake Karras. Today, I have Kurt Buchert. Kurt Buchert and I have known each other for, for a while. We've actually been on some panels and some discussions. We are bull versus bear. We are actually the bulls. I think we're the bulls or the bears. We're competing and doing a debate. Uh, we'll dive into that. We had some bets on, on the gold and where gold pricing was going to be. So we made $5,000 for charity on the bet that we had out there. So um, very interesting. We dive in and you know, Kurt and I, you know, uh, went kind of a wide ranging how how he uh, discovered and got financial freedom by 30, how owning a business helped him get there. But then also the the demise of the business and selling it for pennies on the dollar because he didn't properly systematize it or approach it. Also, one of the things is like how as a real estate investor, he met his wife. Uh, as she was one of his tenants, so so listen for that little nuggets. And then at the end of it, we you know dive into some some book recommendations. And uh, Kurt, being a, a, a avid book reader, uh, you know has an insights of tons of fantastic books. And so just look out and make sure to hang out for the end of that for fantastic recommendations. I'm excited for this episode. I'm excited for the people to listen to this episode and into the show. All right, man, Kurt, good to see you. It's been a little bit. I think it was, did we see each other in, well, it was Austin. I know we hung out a little bit. Uh, what was that, December, January? Yeah, Austin, Tejas in December. Okay. Tahoe, were you in Tahoe? No, I was not in Tahoe. I was. I went to the last, the Tahoe trip before that with GoBundance. I guess that was what, three years ago? 
but I didn't, I didn't go to this one. Okay. Well, anyway, we've got a chance to hang out. You and I have been, uh, on a couple panels as well. Speaking, you know, bull versus bear. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like we won or at least long-term we won, you know, maybe we didn't win at, at the time, the sentiment of it. Um, but, uh, thank you for joining the passive wealth principles. And I, I know we'll dive into some of your passive uh, well, strategies. I'd like to take a, a chance to kind of dive back into your history. And if you could maybe take a few minutes to kind of expand kind of where you are today in New Orleans, not living in New Orleans, you know, you've uh, relocated and kind of, kind of walk us through your, your, you know, past and, and where you are today. Yeah. And a quick tidbit, if you remember correctly on that um, panel we were on, I made a $5,000 bet with a gold bug who's a great guy, that gold, he said gold would be over $3,000 an ounce by the end of 2021. And it is now 2023 and it has not even come close to that. So we won $5,000 bet, which went to charity. So that was nice on that panel. That's what I remember from that panel. So uh, anyway, so yeah, a little bit about me. I was born and raised in New Orleans, um, lived there pretty much my whole life until a summer of 2020, um, my family, wife, and four kids, we moved over to Florida. We live in the Florida Panhandle area between Destin and Panama City. Uh, we live right by the beach. We're about three blocks off the beach. Beautiful area. We love it here. Beach is amazing. Amazing place to raise your kids. Very safe. Um, so yeah, we one of those people that got out of COVID land and got out of crazy city stuff during COVID and we moved out for greener pastures and it's been a really good move. Very happy with that move. So yeah, I studied finance in college, went to LSU, which is in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, studied finance there with a um, concentration in real estate and commercial banking. After college, I was a financial advisor, became a CFP. I believe at the time I was the youngest CFP in the history of Louisiana. I think I was, what, 24, 25 years old. It's not something major to brag about, but hey, I brag about it a little bit. Um, so I became a CFP, Certified Financial Planner. And then um, when Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005, my company at the time moved me to Dallas, worked in Dallas for a year, kind of had some guilt about leaving New Orleans and it's time of anguish. And I really was kind of brainstorming about things to maybe a business to start back in New Orleans so I could move back and help the city rebuild. And I ended up started starting a spray foam insulation business. I knew that construction would be, you know, the big industry down there for a while because the city had to be rebuilt. And I didn't really want to be a contractor. I didn't want to deal with all that mess. Um, and I had had um, spray foam insulation installed in one of my renovation projects. And I thought it was like the awesomest, you know, coolest product and it worked incredibly well. So, and there was like no competition. So I started one of those companies, uh, almost failed in the first like 60 days. And then I was able to turn it around and we did really well. You know, we insulated almost 3000 homes over the course of seven years, made some good money doing that at the time. It was just like incredible money for me. I was, um, like under 30 at the time. So I was making more money than I'd ever made before by far. I was plowing all that money back into real estate investments um, small multifamily stuff, basically duplexes, you know, a couple triplexes, but almost all duplexes. New Orleans is actually the highest per capita duplex city in the country, probably the world. 
you know, there's a huge amount of housing stock that are that are duplexes there. We call them doubles in New Orleans. So I had bought a um, decent amount of those. And by the time I got really burnt out of the spray foam business, which was like seven years after I started, I was financially free. I was single at the time, didn't have that many, didn't my expenses were not that high. So I was financially free. There was no like FI movement around that time, financial independent movement. You know, the internet was around, but there wasn't like people, I didn't feel like people were talking about that stuff back then. But I was financially free, I ended up selling that business for a um, really low price, actually, looking back. I did not build that company to sell it. And I kind of wound it down before I sold it, which was a really dumb move. But I really wanted out. So I sold it. And then um, I got married. And my wife and I decided we took a year off. So we took a year off. We traveled to a bunch of different countries around the world. My wife got pregnant. And we moved back to New Orleans. And um, we uh, had a baby and, and I started doing real estate investing full time. And that's what I've been doing ever since. You know, I've been financially free for a long time, but I, I learned, especially on that trip around the world that, you know, after about six or seven months, I, uh, it was great, but I felt, I felt kind of like a bum, you know, I needed like a purpose. I, I felt like as a man, I needed to, uh, to build something, to create something, to work basically. So I got back to work when we moved back. So in 2000, when COVID hit, I, um, you know, like everybody else around the world, I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, I was kind of scared. I remember being at gas stations, like wiping my hands with wipes and like being scared to touch stuff at the gas stations. But after like a month or two of that, I was like, uh, I don't think this doesn't sound right. And I think they're overreacting. So um, New Orleans went crazy with COVID, you know, masks everywhere. Eventually, you couldn't get into anywhere unless you were vaccinated. And um, I just didn't want any part of that. And we, we ended up moving. I did not want to put my kids in masks to go to school. I refused to do that. So we moved here to Florida. And we didn't have to deal with any of that. It's almost like it didn't exist over here. It was kind of weird. Um, so yeah, that was uh, moved here. Been doing real estate investing. I, right now, I, have, um, I do Airbnb stuff over here in Florida. Another Airbnb in Colorado. And then I still have all my long-term rentals in New Orleans, which are um, all duplexes except for one triplex. And then I also invest in some syndication investments. And that's what I do now. That's awesome. I, you know, I'm going to say that not everybody's story is the same, but as far as there's certain like rhyming and rhythms to that is uh, oftentimes people have to make some money in one area. And then figure out how to like start investing it before they get that, you know, which FI for financial independence or financial freedom or, you know, or you can just live a very, very, very meager existence, you know, uh, live a, you know, a Spartan life existence and then, you know, be retired on $10,000 a year, which is totally fine. You know, however people want to do it, but um, to have kind of a high expense lifestyle you oftentimes have to start with more money, you know, and more money to invest before you can create that cycle. And so uh, that's interesting about the, the, the insulation business, you know, and I mean, I just think about that, what, a, you know, good timing of it. I mean, maybe seeing it in person, you seeing that as a financial, you know, kind of advisor seeing like, yeah, oh, there's a great opportunity to kind of ride this out. But then even your business of being wanting to be done with it, I see that happening at a very macro level right now for a lot of other businesses like contractors that just don't want to do it anymore. And they just let everybody go and walk away. Like they don't ever even think about selling their business. 
Um, so, you know, maybe take me back to that point to like selling your business, you know, now on the other side, some, some wisdom, uh, what would have you done differently, especially for somebody like out in the audience, the leaders thinking about starting or franchising or doing some of the business, what would you have done differently now on the other side of it? Right. Yeah. I didn't know what I didn't know back then. So I was a younger guy. I didn't really have anybody to sit me down and tell me like, you know, build this company like you're going to sell it one day. I just thought I was going to have it and just either forever or just kind of like have it for, you know, do the post hurricane crazy business and do it for five or 10 years and then fold it. I just didn't know about selling it. So looking back, I would have made it a lot more turnkey. I would have like, you know, I was doing a lot of things in the business. I probably should not have been doing, you know, I was very frugal. So I was doing a lot of the estimates myself doing all the bookkeeping myself, you know, I was, you know, collecting the money from the customers myself. So I was doing a lot of, th- sometimes I would help install the product myself. Um, not, not often, but sometimes. So I would not have done any of that. I would have like, you know, stood back and been the owner and worked um, on the business instead of in the business and built it to sell it, you know, but I did not do that. So I paid the price, probably could have sold it for a few million dollars and didn't I sold it for a couple hundred grand which looking back, that was a huge mistake, but you know, it is what it is. It's, it's life and I, I'm not going to complain. So yeah, if I was starting a business today, I would, my wife just started a business. So I told her and her sister who they're in business together, I told them the, no matter what you want to do later, just build it to sell. Even if you aren't going to sell it later or you don't want to sell it ever, build it in a way that you can sell it. It's marketable to sell. It's turnkey. You know, you have your systems down and that you can sell it. Yeah, that's great, great advice. And and one that I had to, and I've had to go through myself as far as, you know, you know, Rob Deerdeck, the skater, he, uh, I think phrased it in the right way. He called it their brocos. You know, he was like, it was like him and a couple of his buddies, his bros, and they started a company and it was kind of just like, Hey, let's go start a thing. And they're like, great. And so they like had no planning. And I was like, a lot of my businesses have been kind of brocos and some I started with family and my brothers literally and others just with like friends where you're like, Hey, let's go do this. And without having those systems, without having, you know, any kind of structure to it, it, it becomes, you know, you become a slave to your own. You, you made yourself a job, you know, are creating a job for yourself and then you're not building a business. Yeah, the reason why I the reason why I wanted to fold the business or sell it is because one day I was driving around and I was not getting much sleep. I was doing everything. I was running to an estimate, late to another estimate, and I was at a stoplight and my heart was beating uncontrollably. I thought I was having a heart attack and I was like 30 years old and I told myself, you got to get out. You got to get out of this thing. You're going to kill yourself. And that's what I decided. I was like, I'm getting out of this thing. So, yeah. So the, the real estate that while you're making good money in the business, what, you know, landed that those investments into real estate? Well, I bought my first duplex in 2003. So that was three years before, before I started that spray foam business. And, you know, my first duplex, I lived in the back of the house and I had tenants in the front and the mortgage was 833 a month. I'll never forget that. And my rent from the tenants in the front were paying 900 a month. And I was like, man, all my friends are paying rent and or their mortgage on a single family house. And my I'm living for free. I mean, I just got to pay for the you know insurance and taxes and 
upkeep, but like my mortgage is taken care of. And back then there was no such thing as house hacking. That word, those words did not exist. Nobody ever talked about that stuff, but I was like, you know, this is awesome. So, you know, house came up for sale on the next block. I did it again and bought a few more, a few, few other properties. And I was like, this is the way to go. So I kind of, I knew that already. Um, so when I just didn't have enough cash to buy as much as I wanted to, but when I started doing the spray foam business and really started cash flowing, I finally had the cash to put into other projects and doing renovations. I bought a lot of like hurricane damage properties and were uh, renovating them. Um, so I finally had the money to do it. And I just, I just jumped at the chance. Well, that's, uh, uh exactly what you said. House hacking didn't exist. There's so many of these things that are like, people are like, Oh, I burned it. And I house hacked it and be like, those were not, I mean, there are things, but just nobody had ever named them and claimed them. So. Right. Yeah. There was no TikTok. There was no TikTok about house hacking back then. I hadn't you know, ever talked about it. Well, and I, I, it's interesting to see so many more young people, uh, I think getting exposed to financial ideas so much earlier I mean, you, you look at those, you know, you as a CFP, but like the, the Reddit, the meme stocks and other things like that, where there's kids that are, and, and I mean, kids, teenagers that are now like opening up accounts and doing things. And they're just so much more astute to the financial wherewithal of, of so many things at such an earlier age. And I, I think that, I mean, I don't know what the long tail of it is, but it is, Definitely an interesting thing. I know I was not aware of that when I was 15 years old uh, or 18 or anything else like that. I was more interested in trying to chase girls and, you know, definitely not on the internet. Uh, I didn't know that was an option. Yeah. And nobody in my family, nobody in my family was an entrepreneur. Nobody owned their own business. So I didn't have, I didn't see any of that when I was growing up. Everybody in my family and extended family. They just had jobs. You know, they went had nine to five jobs. They went to work, came back. They didn't talk about their jobs because they didn't feel like talking about it after work. And I just thought that was life. Thought people went to jobs, came home in the evening and, you know, ate, watched a little TV and went to sleep. And that was life. So I never saw it growing up. So when you and I, that, I'd love to kind of dive into exactly that, you know, you're financially free. You're 30, you know, ish years old. You're now much different than your family. So what was their take on that? You being kind of financially free. And then like, what was that time period, you know, meeting your wife and, you know, that kind of caused that revelation that, Hey, I actually do need to work. Yeah. So my, you know, my family thought I was crazy. I, my, the first house I ever bought, my parent, both my parents told me do not buy this house because they drove by and it was, there was like a, a like one of those corner stores on the corner, three houses down. That was complete drug den and it was awful and you know like somebody got shot and killed 15 year old girl and actually the first the first night I stayed in that house caught a guy doing heroin in my backyard and I thought he was stealing my car and I pulled a gun on him this is the first night I was terrified and um but it worked it, it worked out to be a great investment and um the reason why I bought it because it, it was actually the rest of the neighborhood was pretty decent and I knew eventually the drug store I mean the corner store would either close or or get turned into something nicer and that, um, you know, got it for a better price. So I was right about that. Eventually the corner store closed, but so yeah, they told me not to do it. But, um, going back to why I went back to work and back to doing real estate investing, you know, we had gotten married, my wife and I, I actually met my wife through real estate investing because she was one of my tenants. 
that was a funny story. I had, I was running a three unit apartment behind where I was living and these three guys came by and they wanted to sign the lease. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll email you the list. I'll email you the lease. And as soon as they walked out, I had another appointment and then three girls walked in and there were three cute girls. And then one of them was my wife, who was, I thought was gorgeous. And I said, okay, I'm going to rent to them. So, you know, should I be saying that? No, but hey, who cares? Is what it is. I'm a man. So yeah, it worked out. Now we have four kids and, you know, we got married and, and, and that whole deal. And she paid me to date her. So it worked out really well for me. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. That's funny too. You know, there's, there's, uh, I don't know if you ever met Cole. He's down in, in Medellin. He's part of that green coffee company guys. His girlfriend owned the the penthouse or her family did that he was renting and he didn't know it for a while. And so she would like, and then was like busting his chops and like, you know, and then at some point like emailing back and forth and he was just like, you know, like, oh, it's, you need to clean it up. You need to do better things, do the stuff. And so she's coming in like, like demanding payment and doing, and then it was like, uh, so she is the opposite, you know, kind of thing, you know, rich American, you know, coming and renting out this penthouse, but she owned it. And, uh, so uh, very interesting, uh, dichotomy of events, but you know, for you, you know, it led to Erica and, you know, the four kids and, um, she was obviously understood of what a, real estate savant you were to, to own three apartments in, in New Orleans. So um, New Orleans, and I, I, we've had a few conversations about this. New Orleans has a lot of historic buildings and cool buildings and, and awesome architecture and stuff. And I, and on some of your social media, you post some of these things, especially down in Florida, some of these, like, I don't even know what to call them, abominations of architecture and stuff. So like what has been your, uh, you know, kind of design journey or your investment or thesis? And, and then, you know, talk to me about like some of the, the projects you're building now and, and how you're leaning into kind of the design aesthetics. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the great things about New Orleans. The historic housing stock is, is absolutely amazing. The people that built, you know, the houses in New Orleans from 1850 to 1930, just like the amount of detail and symmetry and thought that was put into the that housing stock is just, it's unrivaled, I, I think, in, in all of the United States. And actually, in, in my area of Florida, there are actually some amazing neighborhoods with great architecture. I just, I post about some, of, there's an occasional abomination that'll go into, you know, some areas without an HOA. I'm torn on HOA, so don't let me come off as like totally pro HOA. But HOAs do a good job of policing their architecture in their neighborhoods. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, I love. I'm big fan of historic architecture. I do like some modern architecture. I feel like it's very easy to mess up. So it's rare that I like um, modern architecture. But but there's a lot of modern architecture I do like. But my my heart and soul is, is more of historic architecture. I like this. I like the southern vernacular with large front porches. And balconies and shutters and overhangs providing shade. And, and there's a lot of that stuff here in my part of Florida, as well as New Orleans. And um, the stuff that I have built in, in Florida and New Orleans, you know, has been the historic, you know, it looks like historic housing stock with, with the big front porches. Um, so, you're, you know, it's a very invite, inviting presence to your neighbors. People aren't just like parking in their garage and walking from their garage into their house with no porches, 
you know, people are hanging out on their porches, they're seeing their neighbors, you know, they're reading their newspaper, having their coffee on their porches, and it's not backyard focused. A lot of United States is backyard focused. Um, a lot of stuff here in, in New Orleans is, is front porch focused. And I really love that. I like seeing my neighbors. I like waving my neighbors. I think it's a safer neighborhood when you have all these eyes on the street watching out for each other. And in our climate, you know, having that shade is is really nice as well. So have you seen uh, that pay off as far as being more profitable? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So like the houses that I've built or renovated in New Orleans, I've, I, I mean, I look on Zillow and they're renting for higher prices per month than my competition. Absolutely. Like not even a um, doubt about it. Same thing with Airbnb. You know, you put um, a beautiful house on Airbnb, obviously it's going to rent for 10 or 20% more than your neighbor that just didn't care about putting any detail into the architecture or the interior or whatever. Another side note here, it's kind of weird. I have two, ha- two Airbnbs that are like two doors down. One of them's white and the other one is like a pretty blue color. Um, but the white house, just because I think it's white, rents a lot more because I don't know why. I think a lot of women are making these rental decisions and they just see a white house in Florida and they're like, oh, I want to rent that one. So that's a little cheat sheet for, you know, doing Airbnb. You might want to think about white. <laughs> that's that's interesting because, uh, you know, I, I believe, you know, uh, what you just said, uh, I don't think I've ever heard it phrased exactly like that between the backyard focused versus front porch focused. But uh, I love that as well. I love that idea because really you're invoking more community versus this isolationism of like, you know, pull into your garage and close the garage door and you don't know that your neighbor to your right or your left, um, you know. Yeah, I, mean, I see my neighbors all the time, multiple, you know, the ones with dogs, I see five times a day. And yeah, I've lived in apartment complexes before, other type of housing. And yeah, you don't ever see your neighbors. I love, love the fact that, you know, to me, I have that same kind of investment thesis is that that design does pay off. You know, obviously you have, it's, it's, it's a fine line. You can't go crazy. You know, you can't go build the Taj Mahal and you're never going to make a return on that, but being more creative and selective of where you're spending your money uh, into your, you know, involving a designer or sometimes maybe if you have a design eye, but also your interior finish outs, your, you know, photographs, the way that you put things together does absolutely translate to the bottom line. Absolutely. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. 
Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. You've now been doing this as far as like, you know, for a while, as far as being a real estate investor and, you know, now I've grown a four, four kid, you know, family, a, you know, six person, you know, family is like, so what does your like day to day look like now? And, and having a portfolio, some in New Orleans and Colorado and Florida. So like, what is your work in your day to day, you know, today? Yeah. So and I actually, as of last week, we're a family of seven because we, now we have a au pair that we hired from Columbia, a 19 year old girl that has that moved into our house and lives in one of our bedrooms and is, you know, basically part of our family now. So now we have a, have a house of seven, but uh, my day to day is, you know, I try to wake up early around five thirty or six at the latest and, you know, have my drink, my espresso, get going. Typically we'll read the wall street journal you know, check a few other news websites and then I go to the gym. So I work out and then do the sauna. It's usually a two hour process between workout and sauna. Sometimes I'll go walk on the beach. Sometimes I'll go jog in the forest behind my house. Sometimes I'll ride my bike and then I will uh, come back and, and get some work done. You know, I manage all my properties. I manage all the Airbnb stuff. I manage all the long-term rentals in New Orleans. Um, so come home and do a few hours of that busy work or whatnot. Um, kids come home after school, play with them for a while, hang out with my wife, you know, we eat dinner and then we're getting ready for bed. So it's probably, you know, I like to be active outside for probably three hours a day. You know, between between working out at a gym or working out outside, that's probably like three hours of the day total. And then probably, you know, four hours of work. And then the rest of the time with the with the family doing chill out time. Sounds like a a, a great kind of routine, you know. And obviously, uh, it's a good lifestyle, I, and I really like the beach lifestyle. You know, it's I'm not, my house is not on the beach, so it's not like beachfront living, which I feel like even three blocks away is a totally different lifestyle because you literally look out your window and you're on the water. It's different. I'm three blocks away, but it's so you you can totally have a beach lifestyle. But you're still a little bit off the beach to where you can actually live kind of a normal house. Like my backyard's a complete forest and it looks like Colorado instead of the beach. Um, but in three blocks away, it's just beachfront, powder sand, beautiful water. So, so how did you pick the location? Had, had you, you know, traveled there before? Had you seen it or you just, you know, saw it on a website and moved out there? So I'd kind of known about this area. I think we'd we'd had one or two trips here before, and then it was 2017. Good friend of mine, him and his wife and their their daughters and our family wanted to rent a house together, um, a beach house together. And we actually, my wife actually picked it. There was a house in this neighborhood that we rented. And when we got here, I was like, "This is really cool." It was the neighborhood was probably like 20 percent developed. There was lots of lot lots of lots available because they had a you know they. They got crushed in the crash here. You know, lots went from, uh, I think the height of the crash, the lots in this area were $350,000 and they went down to $30,000 at the bottom of the crash. Right now they're, they're around four fifty dollars a piece. So they slowly worked their way back up. But um, I love the area. It was between a state forest and an amazing beach. And I was like, this is just like incredible. 
Um, the lots around that time were about 140, 150 grand. So I told my wife, I go, we're buying a lot here. I go, this is a slam dunk investment. We can Airbnb it. We can stay here when we want to go on vacation. So I was under contract. I found a lot. I was under contract within a few days and we ended up buying a lot, building a house. So we finished that house, I don't know, 2018 or so. And then we we would use it sometimes and then we'd, you know, we we would Airbnb it the rest of the time. And then um, and then when COVID hit, you know, I was kind of like, I love my hometown in New Orleans, but there's a lot of problems. I mean, there's a lot of crime. It's it's the murder capital of the country, literally. It's the number eight murder top murder city in the world now. <laughs> the other nine top 10 cities are in Mexico and New Orleans is uh, is like number eight or something. And it's just, you know, it's a pretty dangerous city. It's, it's a wonderful city. It's a lot of fun. But I had kind of like done all the fun stuff, you know, from when I was like 15 to 35. I'd done all the partying I wanted to do. I'd done all the crazy stuff. And I was just kind of over that. You know, I had kids, had a wife, kind of ready to settle down more. And I really like nature more than like being in an urban environment. And I was like, this is perfect. It's not far from New Orleans. The beach is there. There's a forest um, right in the backyard. So like it was kind of the best of both worlds. And there's no crime here, like zero. There's like zero murders a year. There's like rarely a robbery. You know, if somebody has like their car broken into, it's like huge news and people get really upset. Whereas in New Orleans, there's like a hundred car robberies a you know, hundred car thefts a day. So yeah, I love that part. Very family oriented, very conservative. So anyway, you know, there's a lot of military around here. So it's a very, you know, it's just a very safe place. You know, when I first moved here, I went to a hardware store and there was like this little box outside the hardware store that had like an American flag on it. And I was like, what is that? And I started reading the like little sign and it was a place to put your like old American flags so they could properly dispose of them according to the military rules, which I had never heard of in my entire life. And I was like, man, this is the place to be. This is, this is crazy. So I was like, yeah, this is uh this is like traditional old school Americana over here. That's awesome. That's, I mean, I don't think I've ever heard of that, you know, as far as I, I, you know, I was in the military, so I know there was kind of proper ways, but I've never heard of, you know, someone having, yeah. Of people actually doing it. Yeah. You just think, you know, people put them in a plastic bag, throw them in a garbage can or something. So, you know, man, I'd love for your take. I mean, as someone that is, you know, kind of run maybe full circle or full gambit of, you know, from a financial planner, you know, and from somebody advising people getting and starting your own business, you know, now getting to a financial independence kind of state. So like, you know, what, what's your advice to someone that's maybe early on in, in wanting to go through that process? They're a W2, maybe high income earner, you know, and so like, what are the steps in the processes from what your experience if it's taught you to kind of help guide them for some, you know, the next steps. Yeah. I'd say the easiest, quickest way to do it is, you know, if you're making some money is you got to put together some capital and you probably want, you need to get your feet wet. If you want to jump into the fire, you got to do a project on your own, you know, maybe do a flip, maybe do a renovation, you know, maybe buy buy a house for yourself and your family that you're going to renovate and get your hands dirty and learn the process. And even if your first deal, you lose money or you break even, 
you know, just having that knowledge and, you know, learning uh, by doing is going to be invaluable. Um, the other way to do it, if you have no time, put together a little capital and, you know, invest with a, with a syndicator. And at least you can kind of learn the process of how investments work, how real estate deals work, you know, build some uh, passive income for yourself. And, you know, you want to find obviously some reputable, experienced guys to invest with. You don't want to just invest with the first spammy guy you see out there. So that's the other way to do it if you want to go the more passive route and just start learning slowly. Uh, but you want to build a little capital and, 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 and invest that money. But I would just jump in. I would just do a deal yourself. You might learn in that that you never want to do another flip the rest of your life. We did some flips and I learned that I'm not a flipper. I don't like doing it. It's a full-time job. I like parts of it, but it's like tons of work. And if you know the market goes sideways and you lose money, you're only as good as your last deal. So I'm just not built to be a flipper. You know, there's guys that make a ton of money doing that. And a lot of people, you can make a lot of money doing that in a great market. But if the market goes sideways, you can get in trouble really fast as well. Which is interesting because I I flipped a lot of houses. I think I did like 1,200 houses in 23 states. I actually made way more money. Only 1,200? Yeah. That's a lot. I made way more money when the market was in decline because it cleared up all the people that thought they were Chip and Joanna Gaines. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it, it cleared up that. And so, and that's the, the interesting thing about real estate. And I talk about that, you know, it, you know, even in my book is, is it, it's there's scarcity to it. Hey, you, the Tesla stock goes from 420 down to 69. All of us can go buy that stock. But, you know, uh, if it's that duplex and that, you know, gentrifying neighborhood that is going to get cleaned up and is going to double or triple in value, you know, once that does get cleaned up, all it takes is one other person willing to pay $1,000 more than you, you know, and it's gone. You have no opportunity. And so when there's people that don't know what the heck is going on, they're overpaying for things because they don't know all of the work and the the issues that are going to go into flipping up flipping a house or flipping a property or doing the value add components of it. So, um, totally. In the last few years, you know, everybody's been a real estate investor. Everybody's wanted to get into real estate because it's been a, you know, a skyrocketing market. But I think now, like now I'm starting to get excited again. Like I've been kind of sitting back the last two years because it's gotten a little, it's, it's gotten a little crazy, but I think now with the rates going up and there's going to be some pain that's going to be coming. It's going to get rid of, get rid of a lot of the fly by night people. And there, there might be some, some good opportunities coming. So if, if you're getting started, started now, I think, I think we're coming into some good opportunity. So do you still do any kind of stock investing or crypto or any things like that? Or is your portfolio or investment solely syndications and real estate? I do a little stock market investing. You know, I have a Roth IRA and a Roth 401k. Um, and I've got I've got one non-qualified investment accounts, mostly ETFs. I stay away from individual stocks, you know, in the dot-com crash when I was young, lost a good amount of money, and then um, used to do some mutual fund stuff. But now I'm really ETFs. If, if you read Morgan Housel's Psychology of Money book, he has got a really good, I feel like he's got really good logic why to stay away from individual stocks. Because I, I forgot the exact number, but it's like, you know, 
85% of stocks eventually go to zero. So really the indexes are made from the from the big ticket winners and the, the, the small amount of companies that just do exceptionally well. And I mean, who am I to pick those stocks that are going to do well? And then when do I buy them? When do I sell them? Do I wait? I mean, do you want to be like one of those GE investors that like, no, GE is the best, best American company of all time. It's always going to come back. And the stock has just got pummeled. You know, it was just like a 25 year, just slow grind down to, you know, I don't even know what it's at now, five or whatever. Who, who knows what it is? But um, I don't want that stress. I just want to buy an ETF. Like, you know, I don't care about picking the, the next Amazon or the next Tesla. Um, I actually owned Amazon in like 1999. And I've never done the math of how much money it would be worth today if I still own that amount. And I don't think I want to know. But I, I don't want that stress of picking individual securities. So I just stick with ETFs. But most of my money is in real estate. Some of it in syndication, but most of it's in real estate that I actually own myself. Yeah, I think that's the other big thing is that, you know, you said, you know, you manage your own property. That becomes another big component. And uh, to your advice, just somebody going in and doing something. Um, I had a call, uh, somebody as a, as a doctor, I think as a surgeon, you know, making lots of good money. And was actually putting together kind of a rental portfolio and he was renting rooms, uh, you know, all of his units by the room. So like, I don't know what he had, 10 houses, you know, in 50 rooms. So he had 50 tenants that he was dealing with and all, all giving times of day. For me, that sounds like the worst hell ever. Like, I was just like, uh, I want none <laughs> of that. Like, no, thank you. But, you know, he was able to get three, four X, the cash flow returns on it because he was renting and parceling it out, you know, by the room. But, you know, and, and that's the other big thing. I think back to your example of the business, he was going on, on in between the calls to go meet like a handyman. And I was just like, dude, you're making hundreds of dollars an hour as a surgeon. Now you're making and meeting someone like a handyman. So I was like, that's like a $15 an hour kind of job. So I was like, right. You just couldn't give up control. Exactly. And it's like, don't trade one job for another job that actually happens to be a much lower paying job. <laughs> so uh, it, that's to go back to those, like the, the systems. So, and, and I want to ask that to you because now you've been on the other side of it and you're managing stuff. What systems do you have in place today that help you create the ability to manage your life a little bit more nomadic? So yeah, you know, I did travel. I traveled for a year, you know, out of the country, and, and was able to do that, and, and it wasn't a problem living overseas. And that kind of taught me that I can manage my properties from for anywhere. It was a lot more convenient when I was in New Orleans, and I could, you know, if I had to be at one of my properties in ten minutes, I could do that. But I mean, ninety nine percent of the time, I was just texting a plumber, or electrician, or whoever to go fix something. Anyway, I wasn't ever, you know, I wasn't going to the property. Um, to answer your question, though. I have my system, which is, it's actually not, it's probably not the best system ever. It's not the most technologically sophisticated system, but like, I've just always loved Excel. So I'm just like a big Excel person. So I almost do everything off of Excel and, you know, now Google Sheets. I tried using Buildium, tried it for three months. And I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. I really worked at it. And I was like, no, I like Excel better. So I switched back. And I was like, that works for me. My long-term rentals are easy. You know, I don't have to deal with that much stuff. You know, the Airbnb stuff. 
people like get all worked up that it's tons of work. It's not tons of work. I mean, it's it's more work than a long-term rental, but a lot of the stuff is just answering messages. I mean, if you're on your phone a lot, it takes two seconds to answer an Airbnb message. It's not like you're getting messaged, you know, 20 times a day or anything like that. So between the apps and between um, Excel, I did hire a bookkeeper, you know, last year and I finally kind of gave that part up and hired a bookkeeper and that's that's been really good. Um, and she's going to start doing the our tax returns as well. But yeah, other than that, I mean, you know, I do Zillow for for the ads for for the apartments and that works out really well. I typically just have lock boxes on my apartments and I don't what I, what I do um this I think this is kind of cool is I have walkthrough videos of all my apartments. So at some point I had the an existing tenant walk through the apartment while it's furnished and cleaned up and they filmed a video on their iPhone of the walkthrough. I had them upload it to my Dropbox and then I put those uh, video walkthroughs on YouTube. And whenever somebody inquires about my apartment, I say, here's the video walkthrough, send them the YouTube link. I go, if you're ready to sign the lease, I can get you in the apartment. But I don't do physical showings unless they're ready to sign the lease. And that's awesome because I when I used to show the apartments myself, there were so many tire kickers out there that like just wanted to see apartments and they weren't like ready to buy or ready to sign the lease immediately. Um, but now with with since COVID hit, that was one of the benefits of COVID. People got used to just looking at video walkthroughs. So send them that. And if they're ready to sign the lease, I'll usually get the existing tenant to show them the apartment or let them in. And then I do all the lease stuff over over email and it's that's how I do it. That's I love that too. Just kind of kiss, keeping it simple, stupid, you know, it's like sometimes people overcomplicate things. Yeah. How many trillions of dollars do you think has been traded off of Excel? You know, by using Excel sheets and pro forma. So like it is a very, very powerful tool and, you know, you don't need a SAS model for everything. Sometimes, you know what, to be honest, I have had people hand me legal pads and of hand written out like how they kept books and it still works. Yeah. So, uh, man, I, I want to kind of dive in. I want to spend the last couple of minutes kind of talking about books. You're an avid book reader. And actually I see some of the stuff that you post out and I often will grab those books and there've been some amazing books. So, you know, what, what genre, what leads you to these different books and then kind of what have been some of the standouts for you that are maybe not the mainstream ones. I know you mentioned uh, Morgan Housel's, you know, uh, psychology money, which I think everyone should read. It is super, super interesting and fascinating, but, uh, you know, love to, to hear a little bit more of your book reading habits. Yeah, totally. First of all, I think a lot of the people that we associate with and, you know, we see online that are into the self-improvement investment community, I feel like a lot of us get caught up in just reading like, you know, how to be a millionaire, how to be a billionaire, how to hack your life, how to improve your life, how to improve your mindset. And that those books are great. I read a ton of those. But I think you also should read other things to kind of, you know, there's a whole other world out there that is not in, not into self-help and investment. And I think people should take time to read other books. Uh, the books that I love, you know, I love mindset stuff. I love World War II stuff. I'm a World War II buff. I like some historical fiction. I rarely read much fiction, actually. If it, if I do, it's a historical fiction book. 
So, but so now I try to mix it up. I do read the majority of what I read is is mindset and investment books, but then I'll mix it up with you know some religious books. I'm a Christian, some World War II books, and just some some classics. Like you know, I read The Odyssey again for a third time. I don't know, like a few weeks ago. I read a little bit of political stuff, not too much. What are some of the things I read that I, recently that I like a lot? Uh, Angel by Jason Calacanis was a really good book. He's one of the guys on the All In podcast. Uh, that was a really good book. Um, Younger Next Year, the health and fitness book. That was that was a really good book. World War II book that I really liked was Churchill, Hitler, and the Unnecessary War. Uh, by it was by Pat Buchanan, but it came. I'd never heard this angle of World War II. Is that how we stumbled into the worst event in all of human history and how it just kind of like unfolded and it kind of has some you know similarities to what could happen with you know the russian ukraine war how we can stumble into like catastrophic events if we don't watch ourselves um so i thought that was just a really interesting book um about that exit rich was a great book how we talked earlier about building your business to sell um, Exit Rich is written by a business broker, and she talks about you know how you should build build your business to sell. I have my I have my little I keep an Excel spreadsheet of what I read, so I'm actually looking at it right here. Um, Quitters Manifesto by our our buddies Tim Road and Pat Hyman was a, was a great book. Uh, Model Man by Larry Stockstill was an awesome book. Um, I've got a long list here. If anybody wants to email me, I can I can send them my list of books that I've read in the last few years. Yeah, that's I love that as far as some of those uh, World War II books. I mean, the historical aspects of that is interesting. I or started orchestrating because I was I was thinking about this, and almost every successful person that I've come across, I would say high, high, high percentage, ninety nine point nine percent of them are voracious readers. They read a lot, whether it's mindset, whether it's things. Absolutely. Like a Warren Buffett. Well, I think Warren Buffett, I think he reads five hours a day. Yeah, just read a lot. And so one of the questions was, as a father, you know, I was like, I want to prepare my kids for future success. And so, you know, but I want to teach them about money. I want to teach them about other things. And so it was like, you know, do, do they do chores around the house or do some other things? So really what I did is I incentivized them to read. And so uh, I go, here you go. You're eight. You make eight bucks a week. And you have a criteria for that is you have to read 10 pages a day, every day. So creating kind of the atomic habits, the, the, the perpetual, you know, uh, habit building process, 10 pages a day, every single day, and you'll make $8. That's good. I like that. Have you, have you looked into the, to the green light account? So I have one of those, I have the green light app. And it's basically you can create like a get your kid like a little debit card. There's my daughter's. So she has a debit card and there's an account on the app. And you can, you know, if you give your kid a hundred bucks for the chores for whatever, you can break it out into different accounts to their savings account, to their spending account, and into their giving account. And their spending account, they can use this debit card when you're at a store or something and they're like screaming at you to buy something. You can say, all right, here's your debit card. Spend your own money. 
And I've been doing that with my kids and that's been very successful, but I have not paid them to read a book. That's a good idea though. I like that. Okay. So I uh, wanted to make sure to respect your time. Actually, we could probably talk about books for, for a very long time period. Uh, I love reading books. It is one of you know the aha moments of my life was, was diving in and starting to read books. And it was just like, to even what you said earlier, you don't know what you don't know. And like books are like, really like capturing maybe a decade or two of somebody's knowledge. And so like, if you're trying to jack into the matrix and leverage exponential kind of knowledge, like every book you read is like gaining 10 to 20 years worth of somebody's experiences that they condense down into a three, four hour, you know, concentrated, you know, hit. And so then it's like, you know, matrix Neo jacking in and learning Kung Fu. Like you can learn these mindset things. You can learn anything by starting to read some of these books. And that's why I love going down some of these rabbit holes is like, sometimes the one book they reference another book that references another book that registered. And so it's like, I might sometimes read 10, 20, yeah, 20 books on one topic about, you know, behavioral economics or then how does that get into neural and how does that get into brain and how does, you know, and so it's just like, it's super interesting. And so, and then it's like, when I do know something, it's usually because I've read 20 or 30 books around that particular topic. There's still lots of stuff that I have no idea that exists at all. And it's just like, huh, right. That's interesting. I, and so it's like, the more I know, the more I realize I don't know anything. Like, like, I know they say that's the test of wisdom when you, when you know, you don't know. <laughs> and it's, and it's funny because when you look back, you know, when you're in your teens and twenties, you literally are angry at yourself because you literally thought back then that you knew everything. And it's like, it's just a total joke. Cause like you knew nothing. And like now I feel like I know, you know, a lot more than I did back then. But in 10 years, I'll look back on right now and say, I did not know anything because I've read whatever, you know, 500 books between now and then. So, yeah, it's crazy. Ah, interesting. So I want to just, you know, uh, ask a few quick rapid fire questions. The answers don't necessarily have to be rapid fire. Um, so I know we talked about books. What is the book that you have gifted most to other people? Jake, I, I don't really gift many books to people. <laughs> I don't even know if I've ever gifted a book. If somebody asked me, I would gift it to them. Oh man, a book I've gifted. If I had a, but okay, let's put it this way. If I had to give a book to a young person that wanted to get into investing, the first book would be, you know, Rich Dad Poor Dad, obviously. Uh, that's a very cliche money, but I'd say the second book would be Psychology Money because I think that is an extremely important book to read. Yeah, I, I told my dad he needed to read that book, and it was it was interesting because everybody has. I'm the, too cheap to keep giving book books to people all the time, dude. <laughs> you you can give away books. You're giving away nuggets of knowledge. So, <laughs> what is the one thing in the last year that you have spent money on that has given you back the most time? Well, that is extremely easy. Our au pair that we just hired. It's been, I should have done that five years ago. It's a no brainer. It's not expensive. And it's just awesome. And it's bought me tons of time back. So if you have more, if you have, probably if you have two or more kids, especially young kids, get an au pair. It's fun for them. If you're a loving family, it's fun to have another person in your house, expand your horizons. You know, they're, they're going to be from another country. So it's 
cultural experience. And I would say that's a no brainer. Best decision. I, you know, if you have another couple of minutes, I'd love to hear about that. Like, what is that process like hiring an au pair? Yeah. So it, that was just, you know, another thing. I didn't know what I didn't know. And getting an au pair to me, if you would have told me three years ago, it would have been like only super rich people do that or only other people do that. And I was like, why don't I do that? And my wife, my wife started a Pilates studio last October with her sister. And my wife's been a stay at home mom you know, since we started having kids. But when she started that, it just, the kids just became overwhelming. I mean, we have four kids under eight. Our youngest is a year and a half years old. So I was watching the kids a lot and it just, you know, I love my kids, love spending time with my kids, but not that much time with my kids. So anyway, we decided to do an au pair. We found a company, you know, one of those programs that does it. They've been great. It was like $10,000 up front. Um, I think you pay like 400 bucks towards their airfare. They fly over and it's just like 200 bucks a week. You know, you have to feed them and house them on top of that, obviously, but it's only, you only pay them 200 bucks a week. You know, you can give them more if you want, which we probably will. Um, so it's not that expensive. You know, the amount, the, like babysitters around here are like 25 bucks an hour. So it's really a great deal. Um, you know, you have to be comfortable with having a person living in your house. You know, the first year we were married, we actually had my contractor, great guy from Mexico, Gerardo, he lived with us for a year, first year we were married. And then for another six months, we had my wife's best friend, her and her husband live with us for another six months. And we always have family come and stay with us. So we're kind of a more the merrier type family. So that doesn't bother us. That's, that's interesting. I think that's probably the hardest thing uh, for, for my wife, if, if that were to be the case, is like someone yeah. living in our house, you know. Um, they have to have their own bedroom and their own bathroom. So luckily we have a bedroom with an ensuite bathroom and we bought her like a little dorm refrigerator. So she can go in there and she's, you know, it's a great little setup in there for her and she doesn't. You know, she's not all up in our face and stuff when she's not working, which it's not a big deal. She's a great person. She's really nice. But, um, you know, you just get used to anything. It's not a big deal. Yeah, that's um, my family's very kind of open like that. I'll just kind of show up at your house, walk in the front door and just be like, hey, we're here. Uh, things like that. And it's like, uh, that's obviously my wife is now more comfortable with that. Like, hey, your mom stopped by the house, you know, like, and she's like, at first, when we were first together, she, it was just like, I, I, yeah, that's not a normal, but again, like you said, you start to get used to, to some of those things. So, um, one, I just want to finish up in, in this, uh, how much I truly appreciate you, uh, and give you some gratitude, the way that you continue to show up all the time. Every time I've hung out with you, spent time with you, uh, how down to earth and, and, you know, you connect and share with other people. Uh, I also like the way that you, you very much express and, and, you know, convey your thoughts and views on the world out there. And especially in, a, in an environment where people are afraid to say stuff or afraid to, to live into, you know, what they, they think and believe is right. Um, and sometimes that may be controversial. And I just think that that makes for a better world in general is people expressing what their true feelings are. And, you know, um, it is where, you know, cancel culture or woke or whatever the, the bad term is of the day. I just like, you know, everybody 
let them express what they want to do. You know, you don't demonize people for having a different view than you. And I know that you and I don't have a hundred percent alignment of all views and them, but a lot of things we do agree on. So uh, I just truly appreciate you the way you live that, uh, seeing you with your family, family man, and making all of that stuff a priority. You know, thank you very much, Kurt, for, for what you do. Thanks, Jake. That was really nice. I really appreciate you too, man. You've been, been a really good friend since I met you and you're a great guy. And I hope I get to know your, your wife and your kids as well. But um, yeah, on that note, if we, if you're in a society where you're scared to say what you think, that is not a sign of a healthy society, in my opinion. So that's, you know, people need to break through that. And if all of us broke through it, all of us said what we thought, they wouldn't be able, they wouldn't have power over us and they wouldn't be able to they wouldn't be able to shut people down. So I try to, you know, luckily I'm self-employed and you know, I can feel like I can say things without fear of being fired from my nine to five job or something like that. And a lot of people aren't as lucky, but I just don't think it's a sign of, a good sign of a healthy society if we can't say what we think. Well, and that's I think, you know, that we can spend a whole entire another episode on that is I feel like there's a, a big awakening kind of happening as far as the wool is being pulled off the, a lot of people's eyes to see yeah. um, a lot of people in China, you know, talk about this is like, they just always knew that the media was a propaganda, you know, piece. And it was like the, the vast majority of people, you know, thought, Hey, the United States or media as a whole is, is maybe not that here. And, but the reality is, is, you know, whether on your right or left or, you know, it, it's very much propagandized and it is not necessarily, it's about selling clicks and getting views and doing other things like that. It's not about the truth. Yeah, there's a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Said, I think I said that right. You know, he was the guy that wrote the Gulag Archipelago, and he was in a Soviet uh, Gulag for years. And he has that cool quote: "It's uh, they lie, we know they're lying. They know we know they're lying, and they do it anyway." So that's. I love that line because there's a lot of uh, people in this country that, you know, we know they're lying. They know we know we're lying and they do it anyway. And it's just kind of funny. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, hopefully that for somebody here in the audience, that was some some insightful insights for them. I, I think, you know, for me, I took a lot of notes and, and I uh, will be in my life has been enriched and maybe I can talk my wife into an au pair. Yeah. All right, dude. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.RealEstate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. 
go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.